Before you start listening, we just wanted to give you the heads up that this podcast discusses personal experiences of sexual harassment, which may be triggering. It also contains legal information, which isn't intended as legal advice, but we've included lots of useful contacts and resources in our show notes to help you find the individual support you need. can be awkward talking about these these types of issues with other men and that's where I think we've got a lot of work to do. The lunchtime banter doesn't necessarily allow for these sorts of conversations without you being a little bit of a weirdo or an outcast. Awkward. Anyone else been in a situation where you've tried to talk about issues like sexual harassment, inappropriate behaviour and it just doesn't feel comfortable? Maybe that's good, because as conversation specialist Emma Gibbon says, Awkwardness is where we learn. So heads up, we're about to get awkward. It's Penny Terry here, and I'm back with another episode of Rule of Thumb. And if you've listened to the other episodes, you know the legal stuff, you know the policy and reporting stuff, and you understand the consequences. And it's time to move on from the reactive processes to the preventative processes that probably start with an awkward conversation, like the one Steph told me about in a very noisy pub. I remember when I was an air hostess, um, there was a footy trip on board, and you know, you pushed in the trolley down the aisle and went bent down to get a. Um, beer out of the bottom because it's nine o'clock in the morning on a flight to the Gold Coast so you want a crown lager and old mate slaps me on the bottom and I turn around and I said that's not on and his mates were cheering him on and I said no nah, that's it I'm not serving any of you because that's not on and then of course they upped and broadened everything and then they were just making sexual comments and everything for the rest of the flight saying things like about layovers and all that jazz it's like it's just not on one of them already had a beer bottle and went like started poking me in the bottom with it as I walked past but I just I don't think that's on certainly <laughs> not how, how did you find the confidence to tell them not to? I think uh, after flying for a couple of years, you sort of learn to talk to different people in different ways. And um, at the end, like, it was hard because there was me and he was there with all his mates in that sort of bravado. We're on a footy trip, we're leaving, we're on our way. And um, it was hard to stand up and say, you know, it's not on. But and not feel, I still have to serve, like I still have to be here for you for the rest of the flight. You can still ding and request me to come and uh, pick up your rubbish or, you know what I mean? Like you, you still have to help serve them with customer service, but you also have to stop that. We just got to say no. It's not easy. It doesn't sound easy. It sounds awful. But hands up if you can imagine this happening though. Hands up if you'd like the confidence Steph had to call it out in the moment. Hands up if you wish someone else did something, anything. My hand is up, and I reckon Luke's is too. Luke is an electrician, and he worries about this stuff, and worries about what he hears and sees happening in his industry. I became aware of a young lady only the other day. Um, She had left the construction industry purely because she was female. Uh, she was bullied and harassed. Um, after speaking to her boss, his response was, well, it's because you're a girl. 
So being up a ladder and having her male colleagues and some a bit older, I might add, making comments about her ass and sniggering amongst themselves. What is she to do in a situation like that? Like she tried to rectify the situation, but what was she to do? She had no support from anyone on the team or, or, or a boss. So she decided to pack up and move into a different career. If she's up a ladder and she's got blokes below her, as you said, some older than she is, saying nice ass, what do you think their intent is? I think it's probably a bit of showing off. You know, having a bit of that, you know, a bit of banter and a bit of cheeky behaviour amongst the boys, but at the expense of a young girl and her career, that's not cool. What would you like to see? Let's talk about the ideal world scenario now. What would you have liked to see happen or what could have you done in that moment if you were standing down the bottom of the ladder too? I guess you wouldn't want to upset the guys too much, but you want to try to educate them and say, look, come on, fellas, that's pretty uncool. Let her do a job, you know, and then maybe even at lunchtime we'll pull them aside and just quietly say, hey, come on, you've got daughters. You wouldn't want that happening, would you? It's a conversation that needs to be had, but at the same time, again, you don't want to create any issues that may affect your own job or it might create or it might end up leading to you being an outcast. That's a pretty risky situation for a bloke then to stand up and say something, isn't it? It is. I think it depends on the situation. It depends on the job as well, the type of role that you're, your career that you're in there at the time. Some, some of these trades are fairly, I think they're fairly toxic and regard for women is just not even considered. And it's a boys' club and that's how it's going to stay in a lot of these guys' minds. Um, but hopefully with change and discussions like we're having today, we'll get there. How could you start a discussion like this in the lunchroom? Or when you're, you know, sitting at the back on the, you're sitting on the trestles, you're having a chat about what happened on the weekend. How can you bring up these kind of discussions? I think starting the conversation is hard and it's always going to be different depending on who, who you're talking to and what, what field you're in. But maybe just keeping it simple, you know, maybe even talk about an issue you've seen on television. Maybe, for example, oh, did you see Grace Tame talking at the National Press Club? You know, maybe even start a conversation leading on from that and try to mirror those, those, her situation into some things in, in your own job, in your own life. Have you ever been called out or pushed aside for having some of these conversations? I don't think I've been called out. I've probably been looked down upon like, geez, you know, he's a bit of a, probably a bit of a pussy, isn't he? But then again, I can stand proud and know that I did the right thing. Is it, is it tough to, to realise you've got a changing view of the world and to challenge some of the stereotypes and cultural norms that are around you? I don't think it's tough to admit it and say that this is my view. I think it's healthy. I think it's a good debate. It's a good conversation. But it can be awkward talking about these these types of issues with other men. And that's where I think we've got a lot of work to do. I mean, the lunchtime banter doesn't necessarily allow for these sorts of conversations without you being a little bit of a weirdo or an outcast. 
Is there a situation you remember that you can share with us where you felt like that? I suppose one situation is being um, just a just a general conversation with a chap, and we're talking about um, women's rights and you know female apprentices, and I just felt like that conversation wasn't going to go anywhere, and he closed up about it and didn't really want to address that issue. It was probably more easier to talk about the job the next day than actually take on this sort of conversation. Resistant to change? Is that what you what you heard? What you I found? don't think so much resistant, maybe not really feeling like they had the right or responsibility to, to even talk about it. So how do we make people feel like it is everyone's responsibility to talk about it? I reckon we've all been in situations like Luke described where we get the feeling that someone doesn't want to talk about it, doesn't think it's their problem and perhaps doesn't want to change. Is that what we're dealing with? Uh, I don't really believe that, to be honest. Um, I've been to too many men's groups or men's sessions where I've heard men tell stories that they haven't told their whole lives they haven't told their wives of 50 years i've seen too many of of those to say that men don't like to talk let's welcome back to the podcast tom windsor tom's been involved with mental health advocacy and men's health for 20 years he's the captain of the mobart mobros a movember fundraising team and well he's also a man he's a business owner and he's invested in helping men change behavior Men don't like to talk in everyday environments in our in our current society. But if you provide men, and this I think this applies to, to all genders, if you if you provide a safe enough space, um, I think everyone's happy to talk. Um, and a couple that I've been to, um, <laughs> you know, you immediately open the forum uh, for talking and I'm talking within the first 10, 15 minutes of these sessions and people are telling 50-year-old stories I've never told anyone. They're busting to tell them, but they've never, ever been to a safe space. And to put it in, in context and give you a bit of an idea, these aren't hippie yoga retreats where you're standing around a wood fire holding hands. This is just, you know, in corporate settings, just a, a quiet room in a quiet space. You might be sitting in a circle of chairs and you open it up and bang, 50-year stories are coming out about men's mental health or abuse they've suffered as kids. And as I keep saying, I don't think that men are afraid to speak. I just think that we are getting much better at providing and environments where men and all genders are, are happy and, and feel safe. Uh, to speak about some of these more difficult conversations um, that we've struggled to talk about in the past. I think what we've seen in Australian society uh, in regards to mental health and the discussions around mental health, particularly over the last 10 years, the environments we've created for people to feel comfortable to talk about mental health have increased from maybe a, a psychology session to now more everyday conversations with our peers We've proven that we can change behaviours around what's discussed and what's uh, socially appropriate to discuss. How do we create the safe spaces, Tom? 
Yeah, good point. And, and it's something that, that Movember has done really, really well. As the largest men's health organisation in the, in the world, they realised that men probably won't turn up to a mental health session uh, held at the local community hall. But I tell you what, if you start talking about anything at a footy club, then men are going to talk. If you go to the men's sheds, uh, if you go to the fishing shop or the fishing club, if you if you go to the any local sporting club or local community club, uh, go to where men are and they're more likely to have these conversations. They're more likely to, to change their behaviour in an environment where they feel safe, where they feel comfortable, where they feel supported by their, their peers and, and people they're comfortable being around. But that's that's where we need to be having the hard conversations as well. That's where we where we need to be changing behaviours. Um, and I think in some in many aspects, it's much more effective than doing it in a workplace. Mostly, people are there because they're passionate about the club, um, and they want the club to be a place where everyone can enjoy it, and the, the club environment to be. Um, you know, the best it can be. That doesn't always exist at work. You'd hope it does, but not every employee has that same kind of passion for their workplace. If we take the kind of the stereotype, the footy club, how integral is it to changing some of the conversations? Look, as a, as a novice, not an expert in, in these areas, um, but a, a male of 40 years, uh, I'd say it's one of the most powerful tools that we have to change community behaviours. It's um, it's a place where I spent a lot of my formative years post-school. It's a place where I learned a lot of uh, different behaviours, most good. I, I learned a lot about leadership, mateship, uh, loyalty, um, and to be honest, I've probably learnt some poor behaviours at the time too uh, in my early 20s. Um, and it's it's those formative years where we start to assess what belongs in our mix, our makeup of our, our own personality and our own morals and ethics, um, what belongs in there and what doesn't. Um, and I think those places where you provided an environment where you can make mistakes and are still supported, you provide an environment that has some accountability, whether or not that's from your peers or some some form of hierarchy, whether it be senior players uh, or playing groups as a whole. Um, I think there's there's real positivity, not just for men, but um, particularly with with mixed gender clubs, um, footy clubs, cricket clubs, netball clubs that we see more and more of these days. It's becoming more and more, I think, a, a positive place for the young men to to learn appropriate behaviours. No matter the type of club or group, are you wondering, but who's got the skills and the will to lead those conversations well? Could you do it? Do you know someone who could? Hot tip, send them this podcast for a listen because as Michael Bailey, the CEO of the Tasmanian Chamber of Commerce and Industry reminds us. I don't think we should forget the director's responsibility regarding WHS. That it doesn't matter if you're a director of a business or of a sporting club um, or a, a community association, you have a legal responsibility to the WHS um, of your staff and also of your volunteers. So that is a really pressing thing that people need to remember because even if you're with a local footy club or with a local netball club you are a director of that club and you're responsible for the WHS and the people under you. If you're a director then I've no doubt that with the headlines, the reports, the royal commissions it's firmly in your mind that there is a legal responsibility. 
Lawyer Elise Whitmore has been having awkward yet important conversations for years. And here's some of what she's learned. I think we need to be prepared to be wrong or to say the wrong thing. And we need to be in an environment where that's okay. I say the wrong thing all the time. Mm-hmm. Apologise. I'm really sorry. I meant this when I should have said that. And then move on. And the apology coming with a change in behaviour um, is something that we need to learn to accept so that, that people are given permission and space to acknowledge that they may hold a particular set of views that they shouldn't, that they may have acted in a way that they shouldn't, um, that they're just coming to realise those things. And for someone like me, it's really easy to sit and talk to you about this stuff, Penny, because I know it inside out and backwards. And I've been talking to people who've experienced it for a lot of years. Um, But for people who are just coming to these realisations, we need to give them space to change. Because at the end of the day, the problems that we're talking about need people to change. They need attitudes to change. And There needs to be safety in having these conversations and there needs to probably be a little bit of bravery as well. So, are you feeling brave? Is it even possible to call someone out in a way that feels like a conversation rather than a confrontation? Let's check in on that with Tom Windsor. Yeah, really tricky question, but one well worth asking and... Um, unfortunately, I, I don't think there's a perfect way to answer it, other than the fact just keep trying. Uh, you're not going to get it right every time, and, and it's going to depend on the situation. If someone does something incredibly inappropriate, then personally, I, I feel it's appropriate um, to comment quite strongly and 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 let that person know that that's absolutely not right, not not appropriate. Uh, similarly, if someone makes a comment that that's a bit off, how do you? make sure that that's raised in a manner that engages that person and doesn't make them defensive and it doesn't turn into a personal issue between you and them, that you keep the focus on the behaviour and you keep the focus on the content of the comments. So it, it's it's really hard and I know I haven't got it right every time uh, and I know at times I haven't had the courage to do what perhaps I should have as well. So I, I think that the secret is to keep trying and keep working on it. As we've said a number of times, I believe there's great merit in, in engaging someone and educating someone rather than the stick approach and just saying uh, you're wrong you, you should be shamed. You should be embarrassed of that comment you've just made. I think there's there's greater merit in engaging someone and, and, and uh, finding the time to discuss it with them. Um, and that might be something, something as simple as, I wonder if you realise that comment could have been hurtful. I just wanted to raise it with you because I know that you, you wouldn't intend to hurt or offend anyone. And the, the example that keeps coming to my mind is, is with a pretty close mate of mine, uh, an old schoolmate, which is funnily enough where old habits die hard. If they're habits that you formed in high school that are completely inappropriate now and you'd never say it to, to someone you met yesterday, it can be quite easy for, for uh, those old high school habits to, to resurface. Um, sometimes you can have a bit of banter with it too. That's allowed. You know, we don't, it doesn't have to all be doom and gloom. If we can say, hang on a minute, that, that's a bit of a high school comment or don't you reckon we're better than that? 
Don't, don't you think we, we should be a bit better than that? And with this particular mate, there's been a bit of back and forth, which I really enjoy. And he's challenged me on it too. You know, oh, are you being too touchy? Are you being a nanny state or, or whatever it is? And I go, yeah, maybe I am on that one. And then I'll pull him up on another one and say, hang on, what about that one? Do you think we're better than that? So if we can get that kind of dialogue into our, our matiest of, of conversations, then I think that's, that's a really positive pathway through. We're getting some words, we're getting some ideas, maybe we are better than that. Let's keep the preparation going by checking in with Emma Givens, who we met last episode. She's an expert in change and inclusion and bloody loves an awkward conversation. We have to become comfortable with discomfort almost because awkwardness is where we learn um, and challenge is where we grow. So we need to look look forward to those moments almost because they push us to become better because you can kind of see like um how if everybody is angry and judging and wanting to attack we kind of have this fight to the bottom like nobody wins um we see this a lot in our leadership particularly in politics and i'm from the states and here in australia um we largely have a two-party system two-party democratic system where both of the parties are motivated to tear down the other in order to get ahead. And what we have is this you know, decades long cycle now of becoming, attacking one another, undermining one another, so that now there is very little trust and relationship with either party and the public, because there is so much discourse about how the other is worse. And I think that that is the same attitude that some people take into these discussions in their workplaces or into challenging discussions where they go in it with the um, anticipation to attack. I feel like I need to prepare my defence because we've all done that politician thing. I'm right, so you must be wrong, which in itself is awkward to remember those conversations. So let's get back to Emma and find out how we can prepare to not do it and feel more comfortable to call out bad behaviour without it turning into a fight. If you can go into it with a plan, you have a lot more confidence in taking that step. It doesn't make it easier. Walking into the fear is what courage is. <laughs> so you may still have feelings, but having a plan, um, having some backup questions, knowing the direction you want to be driving towards, all of these tools help you feel more confident and comfortable in having this discourse. And I think too, like you can set up the frame of a conversation to be a distinct container, a nice and tight bucket, um, where then you know that it's not going beyond that interaction that happened at the meeting last week, or this clause in our policy, which is insufficient, or this thingy that happened between this colleague and this colleague that you observed, right? Like it has a nice neat container if you set that up as the intention and the thing that we're here to discuss. And that creates safety again for you because you know that it has boundaries and you've explicitly stated those boundaries. And it allows the person who you're talking with to also know the boundaries and get comfortable within that space. And again, even that tiny example of like, I observed this thing at the meeting and, you know, I think I need to say something about it. it. That may seem like one tiny instance, but there's a lot of space in that container to discuss and to inquire and to dig deeper into our feelings and motivations and again what is our common ground or, or, or what do we what is our desired you know what would we prefer had happened in that meeting you know and so even if it seems like a small container it is a worthy container to dig into because there's a lot um yeah there's a lot to unpack in these situations yep it's a lot 
And for the person who's walking in the door to have that conversation, what they've been through already to get to your door is a lot. So if you're the one doing the listening, how do you prepare to do that well? Let's bring back Laura Davis to the podcast. Laura is the primary prevention educator with the Sexual Assault Support Service in Hobart, and she knows that both sides of a disclosure conversation can be tricky. It's hard to preempt how you're going to feel in those situations because it essentially can be very tricky, even traumatic in a sense, for yourself receiving a disclosure. So it's hard to stay contained in that moment of getting a disclosure. Um, But I guess essentially you sort of want people to just come into it with an open mind, open heart, and try to um, have a little think about all those barriers that people overcome just to say it to another person. What sort of barriers? Oh, man, how long do you have? Not long enough to go through them all again, but they're laid out in Episodes 1, 2 and 3, where Laura first mentioned the report by Australia's National Research Organisation for Women's Safety, or ANROS, which found that close to 50% of Australians don't believe women when they report sexual violence. And there's findings to suggest that the percentage of women who are being untruthful is much closer to just 5%. So perhaps one of our big jobs as a listener is to check if we have a disbelief default. But how would we know? Laura reckons it might sound a little like this. I guess, you know, you might say, oh, are you sure? Oh, that doesn't sound like them. Um, oh, really? I just, it doesn't happen very often. Uh, you're probably just taking it personally. You know, maybe you're being a bit too politically correct. Kids today, they're so sensitive. Oh, they're just looking for attention. Oh, I heard that, you know, they're just trying to get out of work because, you know, they're lazy. I don't like, you know, just anything that's a put down, a, a taking an issue away. Mm. Or trying to interrogate the issue. But hang on, you weren't at work today or those kind of things. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great point. So, you know, when we're talking about handling disclosures, we encourage people not to ask any sort of direct or closed questions um, because it just communicates disbelief, that interrogation. Like you say, it's just like, oh, why do they need to know all this detail? I'm just telling them how I feel and what happened for me. In thinking about that, I'm wondering how you work out if you are the safe person to be having this conversation with. I mean, do we need to think about the power context before we even start? Yeah, that's a good question because we do need to acknowledge power differentials, especially in the workplace. You can ask the question if you're in a one-on-one situation like, I'm really happy to talk to you about this, but would you feel more happy talking to somebody else? Like maybe mention a colleague that you think might be younger, of a similar gender, just like a safer option. You know, if if you consider lived experience of Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people, they, they just might feel extremely unsafe with a white, older you know, cisgendered male because of colonisation. That's okay if that is how they feel about it. But if you're culturally competent, you might actually put that out there and put it in your policies. If we establish that we are the safe person, what are the steps to having that conversation well so that it is useful for the person who is giving the disclosure? Well, I guess firstly you want to just acknowledge that if someone has come to you and made a disclosure, that you are a safe person to them which is a a massive achievement and also a a wonderful privilege that you are a safe person. 
Secondly, the most important thing is to just listen. Active listening is a, is a beautiful skill. And that means sort of like not speaking, not talking about yourself, just nodding and acknowledging with your facial expressions and your body language, maybe finding somewhere private to talk. And I guess the next step is to convey um, some empathy or validation. What does that sound like? Um, it's different for everyone. And so for some of us, it might be like, what? That's awful. Like, I can't believe that. Like, that's not a good thing that happened to you. I'm so sorry that that happened to you. But it depends on your flavour and how you like to communicate authentic concern, um, appreciation for truth. You know, like, thank you for telling me. I think it's really fantastic that you have. Um, and that conveys belief as well. And um, that communication of what someone's experiencing can be empathy as well you know like yeah it sounds like that was really tough um and I think that's a really valid feeling for you like thank you for telling me etc so I guess steps after that would be you know like open questions like you know what can I do for you right now like is there some way I can support you do you have a support network around you at the moment those sort of things um, I would say a little bit more listening as well after those steps, like keep going back to the first step because people people who've had their personal boundaries crossed will often test boundaries with other people. So they might just give you a little bit of information initially to test to see if you're a safe person to talk to. And if you meet that with a bit of silence, they'll maybe more information will come, come forth with. What's the next step? And I guess this is the step about what happens What happens next and how you, I don't know if you ask, if you need to tell, um, who's in control there? How does it work? Yeah, it's tough, isn't it? Look, I, it's so important to give people choice because often choice is what is taken away um, in an instance of sexual harassment or sexual abuse. So, um, And they all work towards empowering someone. So it may be that you do have to do something unpleasant um, and my brain goes to the example of uh, you know when we receive disclosures from children like we do have to report it and we do have to take some steps because we're mandatory reporters but what I can do for that young person is give them choice so like I'll be like so where would you like to do it how would you like to do it who would you like to be there when would you like to do it um, would you like some practice developing some language and words for how you feel that you're not stuck in that moment trying to articulate something that you just don't have language for? They're all options and I think that applies for adults, to be fair. Um, we're not so dissimilar to children because, you know, because of how disruptive sexual trauma or harassment can, can be. Now, I've no doubt that this is one of those things that might be easy to outline here on a podcast, but is harder in real life. As we've heard so many times in this season so far, we just need to keep trying. Laura suggests having an option to report anonymously may help to reduce some of the barriers to reporting, such as an online form where the person gets the choice about if, how and when there is further contact but it's worth noting that there are limitations with making anonymous reports as not having an identified witness or complainant may impact further legal proceedings or you could unintentionally miss out on important information that prevents an employer from taking action. So again, it's about getting the right advice for your situation. 
For Nadine, who's reported two experiences of sexual harassment, she reckons getting the disclosure conversation right can be a game changer for what happens next. It can sometimes be the first time there's any sense of validation or understanding of and belief in what's happened. Um, And so I think it can be really, really pivotal for the outcome. Now, we've done four episodes and there's still something that we haven't talked about yet. Well, we have. We always do. But perhaps not overtly because, well, how is this going to go down at work? I think this idea that gender roles are unnatural or biological and we're in our role that we're best at and we don't need to question it, I think that can be quite common and it can also be quite difficult to challenge what that can often lead to is an idea that, you know, men are just better at some things and women are better at other things. So how gendered are the roles in your workplace? I reckon you'll get a really good idea in our next episode. Until then, I'm going to send you back to our show notes, to the resources, to the fact sheets and to the links and ask you very nicely to share this podcast widely. Please? My name is Penny Terry and you've been listening to Rule of Thumb a podcast for the Women's Legal Service, Tasmania. This project was funded by the Tasmanian Government through the Department of Communities as part of the COVID-19 Family Violence Response.